and welcome to the Ordinary Church Podcast, a discussion of God's extraordinary works through His ordinary ways. My name is Winston Weber, and Mike Shera is laughing at me because of the intro I do for this show. How's it going, Mike? Good. I'm not laughing at you. I was just smirking. (laughs) Anyway... We are going to do general questions and answers today. I have a list of questions that Mike's going to just answer off the top of his head as though I'm coming up to him on a Sunday morning after he preaches and, as usual, asking him a question that has nothing to do with the sermon. It'll be great. So, <laughs> All right. Shoot, man. I got my Bible. Yeah. You just get to shoot. I have my Bible and the Holy Spirit indwelling me. I think that that means you are well-equipped to answer these questions. <laughs> so, Mike, question number one. I'm not going to number all of these. Okay. What do the associate pastors specifically do? What areas are they assigned? And do I really need to address them as pastor? Okay. So this is a person who goes to Grace Church of Orange, wants to know what the associate pastors at Grace Church of Orange oversee. What do they... So I would say this. First, let's go general. What is a pastor called to do generally? We're called to shepherd the flock of God, right? We're called to teach and to preach and to to shepherd, to counsel, to equip the saints for works of service, Ephesians 4. So what do the associate pastors at Grace do? So you've got Andrew McNeil. He's one of our associate pastors. He oversees home groups and Bible classes and local outreach and missions. He works with our men's and women's ministry leadership teams, giving them some pastoral oversight. Uh, we both of those ministries have co-leaders leading those teams, and then they have teams of people with them. And he also works with uh, our junior high group, and he works with our college group a little bit as well. Randy Clark is called our pastor of family ministries. He's also an associate pastor here. That is probably a little bit easier to see, but he does some things you wouldn't see in that title. So he oversees children's ministry, family ministries. He connects with the youth ministry people, the people that lead. We have volunteers leading our youth ministries, connects with the junior high and high school leadership. He also um, oversees our pastoral care area, as well as uh, a few other miscellaneous things. All pastors do pastoral care. All pastors are involved with that. You'll notice at Grace Church of Orange in the bulletin, we'll have, you know, Andrew McNeil or Randy Clark is the pastor of the week so that if there's an emergency that comes up or there is a, uh, a need or someone goes into the hospital, that would be the person that someone would call to get help there. Obviously, we have situations that arise at any given moment that we just, you, you spring into action and help. And really not just our associate pastors, but all of our staff really do that. The question that's kind of interesting, should I call them pastor? It sounds like they don't want to call them pastor. And so if that's a person that doesn't want to call them pastor, you're not required to call them anything in particular. I would just make sure that you, as the Bible says, respect those who diligently serve among you and and give them honor in the Lord and know that they're keeping watch over your souls. And so I would be um, appropriate in whatever you call them. This one you can answer kind of specifically about Grace Church of Orange or more broadly, I think, um, since this is going out to more than just Grace Church of Orange people, mm-hmm. I would ask a little bit more broadly, but okay. what do I do if I don't like something about a service or something that's going on at church? Should I just grin and bear it? Or is there room to offer some sort of constructive criticism? Or is there a way that I should go about thinking about changing something, maybe not doctrinally, but something I would see is maybe misplaced at a church? That's an interesting question. So I'm going to take the high road on this and say that this person has a, a heart that's in the in the right place with the Lord. They're not fault-finding. They're not judgmental. They're not gossiping. They're not slandering. Uh, they don't cause divisions in the church. They don't shop that opinion around and say, guess what I don't like? 
they're seriously a person with that question, um, can I ever speak up about something? And I guess it's kind of an interesting question. Like, why would they even ask that question? I thought everyone knew that they could just talk to anyone about anything they need to talk about. Like, I always, I don't know how often I say to Christians, just do what Christians do. Christians relate to one another. Do all the one another's. Now, don't judge one another. You know, I'm, I'm preaching this weekend in Romans 14, 1 through 13, and not judging one another, not passing judgment. Here's an interesting one. It says, don't welcome a fellow believer for the purpose of quarreling over opinions. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I would say this. If it's, so, if it's such a big, and whoever asked the question, it might be hypothetical, might be real, but if that's a really big deal to you and you're sitting on something and you're like, I can't wait to say this, maybe you shouldn't. I say this a lot. If I can't wait to set someone straight or correct something, then I should probably wait for a while and really ask the Lord to to tenderize my heart and, and really search my own heart in this. But I'd say that it's appropriate to ask leadership questions. But I also would say this. Sometimes there are people who wish they were in leadership and wish they were in charge <laughs> and aren't doing the heart, the heavy lifting of shepherding the flock of God and taking, you know, 3 a.m. phone calls and going to hospital visits and all that. And they just go, I just want things the way I like them. And I would say this, the Christian life and body of Christ is not a consumeristic venture. So we do bring that in. For example, and I don't want to tear the question apart, but seriously, what if I don't like something? What if I, I think you said at one point there was a negative at the end. It was if I think something is out of place or amiss. And I'm like, ooh, that's a, you put a judgment call on that. So now you are actually judging what the leadership is doing. I would just say this, be honest with your brothers and sisters in Christ, be in fellowship with the Lord and with his people and appropriately bring things up as you'd like. People ask me questions all the time and they're not always, hey, I totally agree with you. Usually it's, how come the church believes this or how come the church practices that? So let's let's remind ourselves of something. If it's how come the church believes something, we're going to say we want to hold the, the scriptures accurately and faithfully. We want to handle them accurately. We want to actually follow a hermeneutic that will drive us to where Jesus and the apostles were going as they handled the word, but that we um, are rigorous and that we are precise with the word of God and that we are not going to be coming up with crazy new doctrines that no one has ever thought of before. We're really going to say, what is what is the Bible saying and how how should we understand that? But when we get into our practices, that's different because now we have lots of freedom. So let's say you're going to a church and you don't happen to like a certain thing. But if 98% of the people do, maybe we keep doing it, maybe we change it. It's kind of up to the, let's say you don't like the way the worship leader, you know, intros a song or or how whoever's reading scripture or praise, and you're like, I wish they would do it this way or that way. You probably need to check your heart and go, why are you so worried about the way they're doing it? Okay. If it's a valid question of why do we use juice instead of wine during the Lord's Supper? Why do we use elements such as bread versus a unleavened bread? Things like that. Or why do we baptize three times at Grace Church of Orange? That, that's a great question to ask because even, if, even though it's in our doctrinal statement, uh, you really have to think that through. Why do we do threefold communion? Okay, But you could ask a question like, why do the ushers pass a collection? You know, what do we use? <laughs> We use. I don't even know what we use at Grace Church. We use bags. We use bags. Okay, velvet bags. Why do we use these little bags? I give online. It's way easier. So do I. But here, (laughs) like at my former church, there were they they passed a plate, but they also had a box in the back, kind of an Old Testament idea of put a box in the back with a slit in it, and you can just give as you're going in, and no one sees you doing it. You know, your right hand doesn't see what your left hand is doing. Uh, Thank you for asking the question. You probably whoever gave that question should probably ask more questions 
of of those like you don't need to wait till we have a podcast and there's we ask for emailed questions like my guess is you might have already asked this question to someone else if you didn't like the answer you got you know you're gonna have to deal with that maybe what i wouldn't do is shop around until you get the answer you like our whole life is is really saying no to ourselves and denying ourselves this is what jesus calls us to do so i would say almost everywhere i go a restaurant a library a football game a church service I will always see things I would have done differently, but I have to remind myself, I'm not in charge of that in this setting. I'm just going to actually go and and do the thing I'm called to do in that realm, whether it's worship God, read books, watch a football game, and not be worried about all the details. That's what I have to remind myself a lot because I'm kind of wired that way too. I'm always thinking about how I would have done it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. How about this one? Memorizing scripture. Are there specific strategies or are there best passages to have? Are there memorization tools that you like to use? Uh, How do you balance a collection of Old Testament and New Testament things, more theological verses that you you should have, like ready to go to answer? How, How should I go about memorizing Bible passages? That's a great question. And I would say this first and foremost, be in the word every day as often as you can, multiple times a day. And then keep reading certain passages over and over again. I have found that's the best way to memorize passages of Scripture. One time I memorized 1 Peter, okay? I just went and started with chapter 1 and just got as far as I could. And I started reading and listening, reading and listening, uh, literally listening to the, the Bible read out loud on a Bible app, and then reading it out loud and reading it silently to myself, and then rehearsing it out loud. And really, I'm a big fan of memorizing passages of Scripture, not just verses of Scripture. And the reason why? So you get more of the full context, and you have less chance of coming up with false teaching or false doctrine by taking one verse out of context. One verse is wonderful, but a whole passage is even better. You know, read some of the Psalms, memorize some of them. I think the first things I memorized from the Bible was Psalm 23 and Psalm 100. I still recite those almost daily to myself or to you know, really to the Lord and speak them out loud. And we share those in our home. And then the only other thing that I would recommend is, and I don't know how you feel about this, Mike, but I really like a paper Bible because mm-hmm. I picture in my head yes. where First John 3, right. 1 is. Like I know where it is. It's on the right side of my Bible in the mm-hmm. middle of the page. or Top left, yeah, uh-huh. bottom right. Exactly. And for some reason that really helps me remember uh, yeah. passages of scripture. So. Yeah, good. How about daily Bible reading? How should I balance reading my Bible? You know, sometimes I feel like there's so much that I could read, and sometimes I feel like I'm going over the same passages again. I don't know if I can commit to reading all the way through the Bible in a year. And really, how do I even balance Old Testament and New Testament? Or maybe do I read by topic? How should I go about my morning or evening Bible study? Well, first of all, I like the question because it is assuming that they are doing Bible reading and Bible study every day. Or at the very least, would like to. Mm -hmm. And so I had someone say to me once that where in the Bible, they asked the question, where in the Bible does it say that I should read the Bible every day? Because I had made a comment in a sermon. I said, you need to read the Bible every day. And they're like, well, the Bible doesn't say that. And I'm like, actually, it does say that. And let me start at probably the most simple place, but in the Psalms, in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the idea in the Psalms and elsewhere of meditating on the Word of God over and over again on a daily basis is actually 
embedded in there. That's an expectation that you would want to be hearing the word because when the scripture speaks, God speaks. So I'm glad that this question is asked. And the question, though, is what kind of daily Bible reading program and things like that? And again, I would say, do what you'd like. Love God and do as you please. You have the whole Bible, all 66 books. What I do, I start in Genesis and I read all the way through the Bible. And when I finish in Revelation, I start in Genesis 1-1 the exact same day. I've been doing that for years. Um, there's always, if you look at my, my Bible, my leather and paper Bible, one of the ribbons usually is right where I'm reading through the Bible. Right now, I'm doing three Bible plans this year. I'm reading through the Bible all the way. I'm doing the New Testament, and I'm doing the Psalms. I just started the Psalms last week because I really wanted to, to meditate on the Psalms more than I had been doing. And part of that was I'm going to be teaching at GBI on the role of emotion in the Christian life and especially lament. But primarily the reason I did it was because I was going through a period feeling down because of some pastoral issues I've been dealing with, as well as just some of the emotions attached to those. And so feeling downcast a lot and going, I need to read the Psalms because the psalmist was often downcast and the psalmist poured his heart out to God, but God spoke into his situation and bring comfort and correction and, and training uh, for his soul. So how about this? Shifting to a new question. When dealing with difficult passages, those who would say that one passage is more culturally understood, or maybe how, you know, something like the braided hair of 1 Corinthians is brought up, or 1 Peter, excuse me, maybe how the braiding of hair is brought up in 1 Peter, and yet I see people with braided hair around here all the time. So how do we discern between things that are figurative and literal? How do we deal with difficult passages? Well, first, we have to remember how we handle Scripture and how we handle it accurately. So we go a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, where the words matter, the context matters, the original author's intent is what we're looking for. And so you got to look at the genre, you got to look at the kinds of words, you got to look at the background, and, and really, you have to look at it this way. What did God mean when he was saying that? And, and I think when we approach the Scriptures with that mindset and in that way, we don't get ourselves into as many quandaries because we are anchored and tethered into a precise handling of the word that takes the word into context and really respects the word the most, where you say, what did God mean? That's what I want to find out. What do these words mean? What does the grammar mean? What's the history behind it? What's the era? What's the genre? What's the context of what is being written about? What problem in the church was it exposing? Was it correcting? What was it encouraging believers to do? And so you've got to go that way, and you've really got to like be precise and handle things accurately and not just take one thing out. A lot of people like to cherry pick and go, but what about this thing in the Bible? And you're like, well, wait a minute. You just ignored five other issues. What if there are things in the Bible that cause me to have kind of like a double standard when it comes to certain things? First Samuel 15 talks about killing children and... Uh, we think that when Muhammad commanded the same thing, that that was bad. So do we think that what happened in 1 Samuel 15 is also bad or? Okay, so that's an interesting question. I would just say whoever asked that question, thank you for asking it. And I'm glad that you're wrestling with these questions. But let me back up to the first statement. The Bible will never cause you to have a double standard. You might cause you to have a, du a double standard. You might inadvertently misunderstand something, or even you might just have a double standard and, and you know not even be thinking about biblical truth, but just have a double standard. But the Bible will never lead you into a double standard. You will sometimes be in 
quandaries. You will have to make a decision. You will have to have kind of a, a moral question in your mind. Is this right or wrong? But here's what you know. God is always good and right and just and true and kind and loving and merciful and gracious. Everything God is, he's never the opposite of that. And so, for example, in the Old Testament, when, when God was commanding like whole tribes to be wiped out or whole people groups to be wiped out, that would be the most merciful thing that was to happen because of how evil they were and how they were misusing and abusing their own children. And so this is hard for us. A lot of these things are hard for us to get our minds around. I know that at the end of 2 Peter, it talks about people who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. But what it also says is that there are some things hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. So the idea is there are a lot of things in the Bible that are hard to understand, which is why you have to be careful not to twist them and be careful um, not to make the Bible say something it's not saying. What does it mean? It's never going to mean something that's going to drive you into a, a moral quandary where literally you're going to be commanded to do right and commanded to do wrong. All of God's ways are good and right and true. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. And you've got to remember those kind of things the Bible's very clear about so that when you get into these quandaries and these questions about, wait, the Bible seems to say this at one point and seems to contradict itself over here. Well, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. We contradict ourselves all the time, but we're finite. God is infinite. And he can be understood if we approach the word carefully and precisely. So then how do you help somebody wrestle through those different issues that they see as contradictions? Right. The person has to realize, are they going to bow to their mind or God's mind? The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. If we're going to let our mind supersede the mind of Christ as revealed in the Word of God, we will need to answer to God on that one, okay? What I would say to everyone is, so you're dealing with a quandary and you get a really good explanation, but you don't like the explanation or your mind can't bend around it. Your mind is the one that needs to bend, not God. So let me say this. We are the ones that need to move to align ourselves under the Word of God. The Word's not going to be like a cloud that kind of hovers over us and moves with us with whatever whim and changing fancy and fad that we want to follow. So, for example, if our minds change on something that the Bible's very clear about, God's not going to say, oh, it looks like you've changed your mind. Here, I'll change my mind too to fit you. A lot of people... Come to the Bible like that, like it's it's like Burger King, have it your way, right? I'm, we're going to fix it the way you want it. No, that's not God. We are, we're, we're under his lordship. We're under his authority. We're under his sovereignty. And so we're saying, Lord, your word is true. Your word is supreme over us. It's our only rule for faith and practice. We will move under it. We will move towards it. We will not move away. Because if we move away, now we're in disobedience. Absolutely. So this question is really kind of divided into three. So I'll ask them one at a time. What is accountability? Okay, you are voluntarily allowing yourself to be known and to know someone else at such a level that you would hold each other accountable to stay on the straight and narrow path. So for example, in Hebrews where it says that let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, okay, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, that we would open our life up and be honest enough with another person or, an, or a group of people where we say, here is something I'm struggling with. I need you to pray for me, but I also need you to ask me how I'm doing and hold me accountable because here is my intent. Here is my resolve that I want to please God. And it could be as something as simple as I want to read my Bible every day. Could you text me every day to remind me or ask me if I've done it? 
So accountability is really where we voluntarily place ourselves really into the hands of another and say, please help me, please God more. So then do I need to only have one regular accountability partner? Good question. I think a lot of times in the Christian community, we get these ideas and we somehow put ourselves in these boxes. Like I would say, of course not, but you should at least have one. You should at least have one person you're very honest with who knows you. And it should be someone in your local church, not someone out there who isn't connected to your everyday life. Someone in the body of believers that knows you and loves you. Someone in your small group. And I would say... For men, it should be another man. For women, it should be another woman. Someone that you can confide in. It's really to have a confidant. Someone that you can trust with you know, your deepest, darkest secrets. Someone you can trust with your hopes and desires and dreams that won't laugh at you and that won't condemn you, but that will help you and that won't coddle you and say, you know, everything you think is right, that won't, isn't afraid to ask you the tough questions and isn't afraid to call you on something that they don't think is right. Before I ask the last one, I want to follow up on this. How do I avoid the two people coming together, three people coming together and basically going, oh, you know, I I really screwed up this week. And the other two patting them on the back and going, yeah, so did we. And then see you next week. Mm -hmm. How do I avoid kind of just this, you know, going and kind of spilling my guts and then nothing really changing? Well, you avoid that by being a growing Christian that actually wants to learn and grow and confess their sins to God and others and read the word and pray and have fellowship with God. What you described to me is an immature group of believers that doesn't understand what it means to do the Christian life together. So I would say, you know, go somewhere like Titus 2. It says, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And he goes on and on. These are people that are in community and relationship with one another. You have to actually have risk. You have to be able to take a chance to trust someone. The only way I know if I trust you is if I give you something and say, please don't share it with anybody, and you don't. Then I learn, ah, that person's trustworthy. Sometimes you never even ask that question. You just know they're trustworthy because nothing ever comes back to you or comes back around or gets shared out there. And so the way you, you stay away from the, you know, almost like encouraging each other to keep on being sinful or keep on being middle of the road is to actually be honest and say, wow, the gospel is is my real hope for real change. Christ is my real hope for real change. Christ is my life. I need to be involved in life with other people who love Jesus too. So then this last part of this question is, do we need to meet regularly or is it more of an informal thing? I don't see how Christians cannot meet regularly with one another. You look at Titus 2, right? They they did this day by day. They took their meals together. They opened the word together. They prayed together. They broke the bread together. They, they remembered the Lord's death in, on their behalf together. So Christians are to do things together. We are we're to practice all the one another's. One another's cannot be done in abstentia. If you have a friend that all you ever do is text, you don't really have a good relationship. So you got to get face to face and you've got to get life on life and really, I think groups is the way to go because groups self-correct. Two people together can kind of just slip and slide sometimes and say, oh, it's no big deal. But three people, four people, that gets you in a realm where now there's more accountability in the room and more trust. 
Our last question today has to do with being a Christian in the workplace. So when you want to go into a field that you're passionate about, but you are to teach or be a part of something that isn't biblical, maybe being a, a teacher who has to teach things that don't ascribe to the Bible, or maybe even you know the whole wedding cake baker who has to make a cake for a gay wedding, like how do you go about dealing with those things? That is a really good question, and I'm going to answer it in part right now, and I think we should devote an entire program to it coming up. I agree. I think that's yeah. it's worth it. I think that's a really good question, and I think it's one that every Christian wrestles with and struggles with, and rightly so, and here's why you struggle with the question. Christ in you, your hope of glory, convicts you and encourages your heart, and when you know what's right and you know what's wrong, and let's say you have a job where, oh my goodness, they're going to ask me to do something that's wrong. There's certain things that are cut and dry. There's certain things that are a little more flexible. Let me deal with a couple cut and dry ones. If you're asked to cook the books, if you're asked to cheat outright, you should say no to that, okay? And you might, you know, get in trouble, but I will say this. There are a lot of laws protecting employees nowadays, okay? By the way, if you want to read 1 Peter chapter 3, right about verse 13 on into chapter 4, that's very helpful as you're dealing with being persecuted for your faith. So if you are asked to lie outright, that's something you don't need to do, and you're protected by a lot of employment laws. But let's say you have a job where, you know, they're having you do other things that aren't immoral necessarily, but they're they're legal. Or maybe they are immoral according to what God says, but they are legal. And that could be a, a doctor who is going to be expected to do abortions. That could be a teacher who is expected to teach evolutionary concepts. And I've found that your conscience is, is a very important thing to God. In fact, Romans 14 speaks of Christ-centered conscience, really having a Christ-centered, clear conscience. And it's in the context of not judging other believers and not causing other believers to stumble. But one of the things it says is that each person should be fully convinced in their own mind. And basically, whatever you approve, whatever you think is okay for you to do as a Christian, you need to be fully convinced about it. But this is about doubtful things, like it was meat sacrificed to idols, you know. Well, no, the idol isn't even a real thing. It's not about like a real thing where you, you, you deal with it in the workplace. Those are quandaries that a lot of people have to deal with. And I'm gonna, we're going to do this more in depth as we go on. But I would say this. What you don't want to do is sear your own conscience. You don't want to harm your own conscience. If you sincerely think that something is wrong for you to do, or if the Bible clearly lets you know that it's wrong for you to do, I would appeal in an honest, loving, gentle, kind way to your supervisor and express your opinion to them. And what I have found through the years is that when reasonable people appeal to reasonable people, then usually a reasonable outcome ensues. Usually everyone could be happy. They can reassign you for something. They can have you do something else. Rarely have I found that someone will say, you shall do this no matter what. Because again, there are many laws that actually protect. We live in America. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for the place we live. It's not perfect, but there are many laws that are framed to help in these kind of situations. At the end of the day, a believer has a conscience that is captive to Christ. And this is why we have these quandaries of conscience. If our consciences were seared, we wouldn't know right and wrong. We would just do whatever we wanted. But now that we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, now that we've been born again by the Spirit of God, we are going to face these quandaries when we realize that there is something that we might be asked to do that is in opposition to biblical truth. And I would just say again, pray about it, think it through, get good advice from fellow believers, and then 
If you think it's appropriate, appeal to someone who is an authority over you in such a way that you can express to them, would it be okay if I didn't do this or didn't do that? Sure. Well, thank you, Mike. These were uh, great answers to these questions, so I really appreciate it. And I hope our listeners also appreciate it. So thanks for joining me. Absolutely. It's been a wonderful time today. And I want to say this. Thank you for sending questions in. Keep them coming. Uh, We love to field these. And again, we're going to use some of these as full programs, especially this last question. We will devote an entire program to that topic. Absolutely. So thanks again. And speaking of questions, if you'd like to send those in, you can do so at ordinarychurch at gmail.com. And we'll try to get to them as soon as possible. Until next time, thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll join us next Thursday as we remain faithful, even in the ordinary.